The Bioceuticals clinical range has been developed exclusively for clinicians. This product range offers complex formulas, higher doses, and specific ingredients for specialised cases. Bioceuticals clinical infuses quality, credibility, innovation, and professionalism into an exclusive product range that meets the needs and demands of private clinicians. Visit bioceuticals.com.au to learn more. Welcome to FX Medicine, bringing you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, where we live and work, and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present, and extend this respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Today we're going to explore the role and use of personalised digital technology, in particular continuous glucose monitoring, also known as CGM. I want to explore how we use this technology in non-diabetic patients as a way of supporting behaviour and lifestyle medicine changes in issues such as weight management, metabolic syndrome and polycystic ovarian syndrome. So joining us today is Jessica Turton, Jessica is an accredited practicing dietitian. She's the director of Ellipse Health in Sydney and is soon to finish her PhD at the University of Sydney, where she's looking at the evidence for low carbohydrate diets and ketosis in the treatment of diabetes and obesity. Welcome to FX Medicine, Jessica. Thanks for being with us today. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Pleasure. So I'm going to start off really simply and just ask and tell our listeners, what is CGM? Well, CGM stands for Continuous Blood Glucose Monitoring. Um, and it's basically a little device that you wear on your body and it's monitoring your blood glucose levels without you having to think about it. There's a little tag that's inserted just under the skin. It's completely painless. It sounds a little bit invasive when you're first explaining it to someone, but it's painless. And you're just wearing this technology and it's taking your blood glucose readings. And then what you need to do is you need to upload those readings onto some sort of cloud system or your phone or whatever it may be so you can actually view them. And what you get to see is a picture of your blood glucose readings over the course of the day. So it might be, you know, while you're asleep, in between meals, after you've had something to eat, um, during, after exercise, I mean, during work meetings, there's so many different factors that impact your blood sugar levels. And so it's really, really useful to actually wear one of these monitors and learn more about how food and non-food factors impact your individual blood glucose levels mm. and yeah and and we all have we all have sugar in our blood that's very very important our body needs to i guess maintain quite a tight range of sugar in our blood or glucose in our blood in order for all our cells to function properly and for our brain to function properly and our organs and so on um, and yeah, there's lots of different reasons why you might use one of these devices. Mm. We're going to go into sort of how we can use them differently because currently 
really they're used and they've been a game changer for the management of insulin-dependent diabetes. And so Mm. in your clinic, you're starting to use CGM as a way of looking at other aspects, so not so much about insulin-dependent diabetics, but, you know, maybe, yes, if, if you've got that condition, but also broadening the use of CGM. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I guess I'm, I'm doing both. So for my PhD, my PhD is focused in type 1 diabetes, so very much using these glucose monitors for people with type 1, taking insulin. And, yes, it's an absolute game changer for people taking insulin because We know that insulin can change your blood sugars very, very drastically. So it's very important to see and monitor what they're doing if you're going to take a medication like insulin. But outside of my PhD, in my clinical practice, in my sort of day-to-day work, I don't have a huge amount of patients with type 1 diabetes, more so just because type 1 diabetes isn't super prevalent. And I do see people with type 2 diabetes or people who are just trying to lose weight or people with the metabolic syndrome, people with PCOS. Um, and we work with Dr. Pran Yoganathan at the Center for Gastrointestinal Health. So a lot of our patients have chronic gut issues as well. And yeah, we we use CGMs in many cases for those people too, because what we know is that most chronic diseases are associated with inflammation in one way or another. And your blood glucose levels are also associated with inflammation. Mm. So yeah, we know that if your blood sugars are too high for too long, that literally causes inflammation. And we also know that if your blood sugars are rapidly changing, that is another thing that can cause inflammation. But you can also see the impact of inflammation on your blood sugar levels too. So it's kind of a chicken or egg situation. Mm. Let's say somebody has, you know, a really stressful meeting or they're, you know, have really bad sleep because they're in chronic pain their body will make more stress hormones and that will actually cause an increase in blood glucose. So you get to see sort of like a cause and effect of inflammation and stress. That's so brilliant. And I want to go into kind of the nitty gritty and the details of that because I'm super interested in that. But because like in clinic, previous to something like using a CGM, we used to use things like hemoglobin A1C or fasting glucose, maybe cholesterol, maybe uric acid to kind of look at glucose metabolism as a whole. And there's so many limitations to those tests because they're really just a snapshot. So as Mm. I was preparing for this chat, there was a a research paper discussing, you know, three different patients all with the same hemoglobin A1C, but they all had three different types of glucose curves. One with super high regular, you know, regular highs and regular lows, which therefore the average out the hemoglobin A1C was normal. Minimum variation, so obviously that's the optimal, and then intermittent excursion, so slow rises, slow declines. So this is the kind of variation that CGMs can pick up, am I right? Yeah, definitely, because the CGMs, depending on which one you're using, they're either taking a measurement every five minutes or they're taking a measurement every 15 minutes. So you get to see the curves of the blood glucose across the day within like within an hour, you get so much data within one hour. Whereas yes, the HbA1c, what that is, is measuring how much sugar has kind of stuck to your red blood cells 
and we sort of call it a three-month average of your blood sugars. So it Mm. absolutely can't capture day-to-day variation. That's right. And so tell us a little bit about glucose dysregulation because in clinical practice, that's actually quite a new way of expressing glucose dysregulation, so the variability. So I know that in the research they're sort of saying when the blood sugars are too low, that actually creates an adrenaline surge, which then increases your cortisol and then sets off the inflammation cascade. What's happening with these high readings and too low readings? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing I sort of thought about when I started using these CGMs is far out. We actually don't know what normal blood sugars look like because Mm. CGMs were, or they've always been used in people with type 2 diabetes or insulin dependent diabetes, type 1 diabetes. So we started off using these devices in people with severe blood glucose dysregulation. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it's only, I guess, more recently that people are accessing them for other reasons. And even the research looking at people without diabetes and using glucose monitors, that's also more recent too. It used to be like, well, if I don't have diabetes, why would I test my blood sugar? You know, even the word blood glucose, the first thing people think of is diabetes. Mm. But we all have, (laughs) we all have glucose in our blood and it's important for all of us, right? So, Absolutely. You know, so so yeah. what do we know about normal? Like, I mean, I was reading the, the research and we say, you know, sugar as high as 11 postprandially is mm. okay. Is that okay? Or should we be trying to gain tighter control? What's your yeah. experience in, in practice? So most of the blood glucose targets, are usually the, the targets for fasting blood sugars and after meals are usually 3.9 to 10 And if you're measuring it directly after a meal, as you just said, oftentimes it goes up to 12. But in my opinion, they are for people with diabetes. So Mm. those broad ranges, those management targets that you usually find online or you even find on your glucose monitor, they are generally for people who already have established diabetes and we're just trying to prevent their diabetes from getting worse. That's what those targets do. Because you can have somebody with type 2 diabetes, for example, who is within the range of 3.9 to 10, 100% of the time, but their blood sugars are all over the place, they're feeling terrible, their HbA1c might be 8 or 9, and Mm. they're on, you know, tons of medications to try and control their blood sugars. So those ranges definitely aren't what we would call ideal. What we do know is that a blood sugar around five is where our body does function at its best. And of course, there's going to be deviations sort of above and below that. So in our clinic, we tend to recommend a range of sort of 3.5 to 6.5 as where we want our blood sugars to be for the majority of the time. But even with that range, we still want to, I guess, wear a glucose monitor and actually see where the blood sugar is sitting and for how long. Because, Mm. you know, we do have some patients that always sit between 3.5 and 6.5, which is pretty tight blood sugar control. But there'll be some days where their blood sugars are just hanging out at six all day. And we're Mm. like, well, hang on a second. Why is your blood sugar sitting too high at six? Um, on this day and then all the other days it's at five we know because we have the glucose monitor we can collect all this data that 
that six is abnormal for that person. Yeah. Whereas another person, their blood sugar sitting at six could be normal for them. So yeah, there's individual variation and we don't have the exact answer, but these glucose monitors allow practitioners to learn from their patients and yeah, you collect so much data, you ask the patient how they're feeling and things like mm. that, and you can kind of figure out what their ideal blood sugar range is. Yeah, and I think it's just fascinating too of the kind of, you know, you mentioned the chicken or the egg kind of factor because it could be they might be at six because they've had a really poor night's sleep or there's something bothering them. So I always love looking at, um, I guess, that internal stress response. You know, some some people cope with stress so beautifully but somewhere in them there is still stress even though they might be coping you know really well with it or it could be the the sleep or the alcohol the night before etc etc so it's a great way of exploring what actually is going on for that individual person we have picked up so many cases of sleep apnea by putting glucose monitors on people yeah that's fascinating isn't it Yeah, really fascinating. I mean, I thought GPs were doing quite regular testing for sleep apnea and perhaps they are and perhaps the patient just doesn't want to go off and do that sleep study because I imagine that's pretty uncomfortable. Mm. But yeah, you're exactly right. If their blood sugars are sitting too high overnight and in some cases we see people's blood sugars like swing wildly up and down through the night and we're like, did you get up and have something to eat? And they're like, no, I was asleep this whole time. Mm. And then we say, well, how did you feel when you woke up in the morning? Terrible. I felt like I hadn't slept or I'd been hit by a truck. And it's like, okay, Mm. you need to go and investigate that because that is definitely not normal. Yeah. Well, sleep apnea is so prevalent, really. I mean, you know, they're sort of saying 10 to 15% of the population and and the sleep study places are are, are so full, you know. Um, Sleep physicians, the wait's, you know, three to six months. So that's often, you know, some of the issues that GPs are facing as well. So but apart from dietary choices, let's talk about these other factors that impact glucose modulation. So we mentioned sleep and sleep apnea is a big one, but also anxiety, for example, affects glucose modulation and, and exercise. Let's talk about yeah. what other impacts that you've seen using CGM apart from their dietary choices. So these non-diet factors are more clear in people that do have some level of insulin resistance, like the metabolic syndrome or prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, polycystic ovarian syndrome, because the process is still happening for people without diabetes, but you just don't see it as clearly on the glucose monitor. And Mm. again, depending which glucose monitor you've chosen, it might be really quite sensitive. It might not be that sensitive. So for example, if you are, you know, doing some exercise and let's say you're doing exercise that requires glucose. So if you're doing a high intensity interval training session or something like that, even if you haven't eaten any carbohydrate, your body still needs glucose for that activity. So your body Mm. will make glucose for the activity. And you will generally see within a sort of 15-minute period your blood sugar rise because of that, because your body has made the sugar. And then what tends to happen is because your muscles are pumping and working really hard, the muscles will just suck up that glucose without your body needing to produce insulin. Mm. So you can see that on a blood glucose monitor. As I said, you can see it more in people who um, are a bit insulin resistant because their muscles are a bit insulin resistant. 
but you can still see it. If you've got an athlete who's training really hard, then Mm. they're making lots of glucose. You can see that. And when you say, you know, showing lots of glucose, are we talking kind of up around the seven or eight, 10 or 11? Like what are the numbers that you kind of see when you see someone that is just doing a a high intensity workout? It depends where the blood sugar levels start. So like, let's say they're doing like a fasted activity and they haven't eaten anything for 12 hours. So their blood sugars might be just hanging out on the lower end, maybe around four, 4.5. Then if they do a high intensity interval session, their blood sugars might go up to like 6.5 or something like that. They're not going to go super, super high. Um, But the other thing as well is it depends on which blood sugar monitor you're using. If you're using a, a blood sugar monitor that's taking a reading every five minutes, you might actually pick up that it goes even higher. If you're okay. only using one that takes a measurement every 15 minutes, you might miss a data point that goes even higher than that. So yeah. you might not actually see how high it goes. But it's still a good indication of how your blood sugar is mm. changing. And it's not a bad thing. You know, like patients will come in and they'll be like, oh, my God, exercise is terrible for me. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll show me all their spikes from exercise. And and when I say spikes, again, it's relative to the individual. So they might be like, you know, really, really setting out to have these stable blood sugars. So if they see a little mm. spike like that, it's something that alerts them. Yeah. And we just have to understand that it's it's different for exercise, high-intensity interval training, because your muscles are sucking up the glucose. So you're not producing insulin in those situations. Mm. Whereas stress is different because stress, we are producing all these stress hormones, which increase our blood glucose levels in expectation that we're going to need that glucose. But Mm. usually, you know, modern day stress, we're sitting at a computer screen wondering why our emails aren't working or something like that. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) IT stress. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So we don't tend to actually use that glucose that our body made and it kind of just sits in the bloodstream and then our body has to put it away. And mm. the way our body puts it away is by producing insulin and then that helps the blood sugar go into the cells. And if you're doing that a lot, if your body's always producing insulin throughout the day because you've got a lot of stress going on, that can lead to weight gain, insulin resistance, progress you towards diabetes and high blood pressure and things like that. Yeah, amazing. So what about hypoglycemia? So sometimes when I've used um, the CGM in my clinical practice, there's people that actually have hypoglycemic events. They, they don't actually know that they're having that. Like they don't actually feel hypoglycemic. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's something that is commonly picked up maybe, you know, twice a day, maybe once a day, etc. What's going on there? People without diabetes? Yeah, people without diabetes. People, maybe they've got some insulin resistance. You know, we're not quite sure. We're sort of just at that early stages. It depends what it's following. So if you have someone who, you know, maybe they haven't eaten for four hours or five hours or they wake up in the morning and they skip breakfast or something like that. So they don't actually Mm. have food in their system. Then it's Probably just that their blood sugar levels are at the lower end of normal. Because when you say hypoglycemic, what numbers are you talking about? Oh, 3.4 sort of thing. Not not in the twos, but 
yeah. just in the low threes. Yeah. So yeah. what I was, I guess, I guess the question is also like, you know, it's the same with blood pressure. We have these arbitrary cutoffs, like anything below, you know, 150 is um, low blood pressure. But some people, you know, walk around with 90 on 50. Yeah. But it's normal yeah. for them. Yeah. So I guess that's that's the thing is like, you know, we've got this 3.5 to 6.5 is normal. Is some people normal at 3.4, 3.3? Yeah, definitely. So people who are, if their body can use fat efficiently as a fuel source, then the blood sugars will sort of drop because their body doesn't need the glucose. Mm. So so for like as I was saying, like if you haven't eaten for a while, if your insulin levels are low, so there's nothing stopping you from burning fat, your body starts breaking down fat, whether it's stored body fat or fat from the diet and using that for energy. Your brain will suck up that fat, your heart will suck up that fat. Everything in your body will be happily using fat. Mm. And glucose's role is to provide us with energy. So yes. if your cells are already taken care of and they're using fat, they don't need as much glucose. So your body right. will naturally produce less glucose, but mm. it's never going to just stop producing glucose. Like if you don't eat carbohydrates for 48 hours, your body is still going to make the glucose you need. Um, it's never just randomly, like your blood sugars aren't just randomly going to fall to one um, mm. or anything like that. You know, some people get a bit alarmed if they see their blood sugars going low. It just means your body doesn't need as much glucose at that time. Yeah. Now, that's for someone who's not symptomatic. If you're actually symptomatic and you're, you know, feeling symptoms of low blood sugar, so you're shaky mm. or anxious or hungry or irritable, usually in someone without diabetes, that usually follows a meal. And mm. it might be one to two hours after a meal. And what it means is that um, it's something called reactive hypoglycemia where it's it's a form of carbohydrate intolerance where your body actually over predicts how much insulin you need. So when your blood sugars start rising because you've eaten some carbohydrates, like let's say you've had a meal with mashed potato or you've had some bread or something like that. Mashed potato is terrible, isn't it? It's like really, <laughs> it's really like a bowl of Skittles. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, any carbohydrate is going to lead your blood sugars to rise, mm. whether it's good carbohydrate, not good carbohydrate. I mean, that's carbohydrate breaks down to sugar. So it has to yeah, cause sure. an increase in your blood sugars. But yeah, with some people, their body really doesn't like their blood sugar changing. And so yeah. when the blood sugar starts to rise, their body will release large amounts of insulin, probably more insulin than they actually needed, which can cause a consequent drop in their blood sugars. And because mm. their blood sugars are dropping too low for their needs, what happens is they tend to feel symptomatic, they run out of energy, they get brain fog, shaky, irritable, irritable and so on. Mm. But eventually what will happen is their stress hormones kick in like you were alluding to before and they'll start making glucose again. So it's not a life-threatening situation for people without yeah. diabetes, but it's certainly something that can make people feel uncomfortable, can increase anxiety, can make it very, very difficult to quote-unquote eat healthily. These people do need quite a specific diet um, mm. where the carbohydrates are controlled they have a lot of protein, good healthy fats, and that basically stabilizes the blood sugar. Yeah, because it's interesting when I was I was doing some reading up on that, and because one of the issues with hyperglycemia and the way that the body responds, you know, you, you mentioned the release of stress hormones, but that release of stress hormones also actually activates cytokine release and increases platelet 
activation and neutrophil production, which can then also microscopically lead to this subacute inflammation that we all talk about in terms of one of the drivers of chronic diseases. So I think it's it's one of those things that if this is a big issue, this is this is the sort of stuff that CGM, you know, is a game changer for. One of the things that we can kind of look out for. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, definitely, for sure. Mm. And I, I always recommend patients when they're using a CGM to keep as many notes as possible. Um, yeah. The CGM usually stays on for 7 to 14 days, depending on the brand that you get. And, yeah, usually it, it pairs with an app on your phone. And every mm. time you scan your phone against the sensor, it gives you an opportunity to write a note so, mm. yeah, I would always recommend take down notes about how you're feeling. So any symptoms that are slightly unusual, headaches, irritability, anxiety, any stressful events, any physical activity, and then, of course, food as well. Mm. And you, you mentioned sleep apnea before and kind of diagnosing sleep apnea. Is there other aspects of glucose dysregulation that actually affects insomnia? So, for example, like a lot of people you know, they may not have sleep apnea and they actually feel like they they do sleep. But we know a lot of people, I think it's up to 33% of the population, suffer some level of insomnia. Mm. In your experience, has has glucose metabolism or dysregulation play a role in that? Yeah, I would probably say there's quite a few mechanisms for why it would. But one thing that I'm just thinking for people who, oh, I guess, I mean, this would be people with diabetes and without But a big issue that we see for people with insomnia is magnesium deficiency. Mm. And we know that when your blood sugars are high, what happens is, I I don't want to get this wrong, but it's either your glucose and magnesium compete to get into the cell. So if your blood sugar is high, glucose will preferentially get into the cell over magnesium. And then also when your body is excreting glucose from the body. So if your blood sugars are high and you have excess blood sugars, your body tries to get rid of that to bring it back Mm. down to normal. So you'll lose glucose in the urine, for example. But to get that glucose out of the body, it does take magnesium with it. Mm. So it's like magnesium wasting. Yeah, yeah, waste down exactly. magnesium. Yeah. So we know that people with glucose dysregulation and insulin resistance, they have a higher requirement for magnesium. Mm. So they're more likely to become magnesium deficient. And if you're magnesium deficient, then your your cells, including your muscles, your nerves, they're not getting the magnesium they need, and mm. they need magnesium to switch off and relax. So a lot of the times people are going to bed and they're wired, you know, that wired but tired feeling. (laughs) And it's like whatever (laughs) they try to do, they can't, you know, they can't switch off, they can't relax, you know, they don't even yawn because their body Mm. just can't get into that state of relaxation. Yeah, and it's such a such a good magnesium. yeah, it's it's such a good way to understand it too because I've often spoken about you know magnesium. You know when you do have a high you know carbohydrate diet, or if you have a lot of coffee, or if you have a lot of alcohol, or if you have a lot of stress, you waste that magnesium away. And so mm. you know it's just a really nice simple way for people to understand. You know why do I need so much magnesium, which to kind of calm <laughs> myself down? So I it's, know it's that 
trying to block up the the holes, trying to block up the 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 loss of the magnesium, which is really common in our day to day lives. Exactly. And my patients will always say to me, what did they do? What did humans do 10,000 years ago when we didn't have all these supplements? And I'm like, well, they certainly weren't experiencing this chronic stress like we are today. So their requirements for these nutrients weren't as high. And then the other thing about magnesium, which you've probably talked about before, is that the magnesium in the soils in Australia is so deplete. So Mm. the foods that we used to think were rich in magnesium, like berries and nuts and seeds and things like that, they no longer contain sufficient levels of magnesium. Mm. So our food isn't a reliable source. So most people are going to need a supplement even just to meet their basic requirements, let alone people who are under significant stress, which is Mm. most people, they're definitely going to need a level of supplementation. Brilliant. I 100% concur. <laughs> but I wanted to I wanted to explore a little bit cuz you know we mentioned high intensity exercise which is obviously you know the latest and thought to be really fantastic for weight management and and for many people an exercise of choice. But what about different choices of exercise? Like do you know or do we know about things like long walks? You know Hippocrates always talks about you know walking is man's best medicine, you know, like that kind of 10,000 steps a day or do we know the impact of something like yoga on glucose metabolism? So, you know, do we know a little bit about what particular exercise and how it changes in terms of glucose metabolism? Well, I mean, I can tell you what I know from my patients. I would say to my patients coming from where we were, what we were speaking about before about stress is choose the exercise that lowers your stress the most because Mm. generally what happens is you've got people who want to lose weight right Mm. so you've got people who are desperately trying to lose weight they're on all these crazy diets they're fasting they're working 10 hours a day and then they're going to the gym for like two hours doing everything they can there's a lot of patients that fit into that camp that are just desperately trying to do everything And for those people, if you've got this heightened level of stress, you'll probably find in your glucose data that your blood sugars are just sitting a little bit too high all day. So when you come along to that exercise, if you're then doing something like high-intensity interval training, it can actually cause more harm than good in some situations because Mm. exercise is a stressor. Mm. Um, It's a positive stressor, but it is still a stressor. And Mm. so I like to think of our stresses all going in the same bucket. It doesn't matter Mm. whether it's positive or negative. So if you've got all this negative stress going on and then you're trying to be healthy and one of those things is adding lots of exercise, especially that high-intensity interval training, which is probably one of the more stressful forms of training for your body, Mm. then it actually may not be the right thing for you. And you may notice in your blood sugars they sit a little bit higher and or they don't come down as quickly as you'd like after exercise or something like that. Mm. Yeah. Um, and for yeah, and for those people, maybe doing a half an hour walk would be better. And mm. we might work on the stress in the body, so we might increase their magnesium, increase their omega three. We might change the structure of their diet to stabilize their blood sugars. And once we've done all that, and their body is under less stress then they can go and do the HIIT training because their body is able to deal with the stresses better because they don't have all this stress overflowing their stress bucket. Yeah, Um, that's such a a good way to to look at it so that people can actually 
start to choose and see and witness, mm. you know, let's get that biofeedback from their own choices. Amazing. Exactly, exactly. And I don't know, I mean, that's probably more something you'll see in people's symptoms rather than using a blood glucose monitor per se because, mm. You know, if you talk to a patient and you hear they're doing all this exercise, they might be doing one, one and a half hours a day and they're trying to lose weight. So you're kind of thinking, oh, good for them. That's great. But then you dive a little bit deeper and find out that they're not recovering after exercise. So they're sore for like seven days instead of just the next day. And when they finish a session, they feel more fatigued, not Mm. more energetic. If you're noticing things like this, they're getting a lot of muscle cramps, muscle pain, things like that then it probably means that the exercise is too inflammatory for them. So they need Mm. to change the type of exercise or reduce the duration. And what about things like, you know, alcohol, smoking, some of the more illicit drug-related activities? What do you notice with that? Is there research on things like smoking and glucose? I don't know about smoking in particular, but I do know about alcohol. And alcohol is a good one to talk about because... Alcohol can actually lower your blood glucose. And so a lot of the times, especially people with diabetes, their blood sugars are sitting a little bit high and they have a couple of glasses of wine or they have some spirits or something like that. And they see their blood sugars come down and they're like, oh, this is the best thing ever. I should just drink everything tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Great. It's a good one to talk about. And then in your yeah. people who maybe don't have high blood sugars or even people with type 1 diabetes, then having alcohol can actually make your blood sugars go too low. So, again, yeah. it's something to be aware of. And the reason that this happens, and I'm talking about pure alcohol like dry wine or spirits that don't have any carbohydrates or sugars mm, in them. Sure. Um, so what happens is if we think about the different fuel sources for the body, we've got fats, we've got carbohydrates, and we also have alcohol. And your body can only use one source of fuel at a time. It cannot metabolize mm. two at once. So your body will always prioritize the most toxic fuel first. So usually that's glucose. Your body will always burn glucose before fat. Um, Mm. If you eat like a sandwich or something like that, like a cheese sandwich, your body will always deal with the glucose first. The fat usually just goes and sits on the sideline. Usually it never gets burned for most people because the body's always dealing with the glucose. Right. And that's really important because if your body didn't prioritize the most toxic fuel first, then that glucose would just sit in your blood and start damaging things because it is mm. toxic. It is a toxin. Mm. But alcohol is more toxic than glucose. So, again, your body needs to prioritize the alcohol first, which means glucose needs to sit on the sideline. Mm. And so your body's in a tricky situation there because glucose is also toxic. So what your right. body does is it stops producing glucose. So your liver's Mm. production of glucose, which is always going 24-7 in the background, it just shuts off. Right. So what that does then is it causes the blood glucose levels to kind of dip lower. And they tend not to just like, I mean, they definitely don't just drop to nothing. Your body still maintains a safe level of blood sugar control if you don't have type 1 diabetes. But they do drop significantly. So as Mm -hmm. I said, people with type 2 that are used to having blood sugars of 10 all day, they might have some alcohol and their blood sugars drop to 8 and they're in the green zone and they're like, this is cool, I need to drink more alcohol. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. 
That's really fascinating. I mean, there goes there, that's. I mean, that's why fatty liver and alcohol-related fatty liver is uh, the, the two sources of metabolic syndrome within the liver. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And I think if people are having one or two drinks and the drinks aren't associated with extra sugars or extra carbohydrate and it's part of a, a healthy diet, then I don't really see any detrimental impact on that. I mean, if you already have established fatty liver or something like that, then you might want to reconsider. But for people mm. who don't, it's usually not detrimental. However, what tends to happen when people drink is they make poorer choices. So mm. they either drink more, they're like, oh, I'll just have one or two, but then it leads to three, four or five. Or they choose foods that are less ideal for them because they've got, you know, less awareness and less worries, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So it's kind less of like frontal less frontal lobe, less, yeah. less um, inhibitions. <laughs> Decision-making capacity, yeah. yeah. So I usually try to figure that out with my patients too. Like if they're having one or two drinks and that's not leading to any consequences, then that's no problem at all. But if one or two drinks leads to a whole, you know, path of other issues that can then negatively impact their blood sugars and their health, then it's something you need to look at. Yeah, it's just brilliant. I mean, it's just, it's such a, a great way to explore metabolism, lifestyle, stresses. What is the feedback that you're getting from patients? Yeah, what, what are they saying about using a CGM? Are they finding it helpful? What are they saying? Mm. It's a good question because nowadays that is the main reason we use it, just so the patient can see what's going on. Because mm. we, I mean, we've used so many, I have so much CGM data that I can in many cases, predict what someone's blood sugars are going to be doing based on mm. everything else they've said. You know, I almost don't need to do the CGM for a lot of people anymore unless it's like a troubleshooting exercise, you know, where we've done everything else we can and we really just want to check the blood sugars are all good. But, yeah, most of the time we're using the CGM for their benefit so they can see on a day-to-day -day basis how different foods and different activities are impacting them because in our education session we might say okay these foods that are high in carbohydrate are going to increase your blood sugar and that's going to cause a release of insulin and that's going to you know potentially stop you from losing weight and it's one thing to hear that but then it's another thing to actually see it firsthand in your own blood glucose mm. um, and especially for patients who are a little bit resistant to change so we have some patients who come in because their doctor told them to and they're not really that keen on changing their diet. They think everything they're doing is right. Maybe they've been following standard conventional healthy eating advice, but they've got type 2 diabetes or they've got high blood pressure or the metabolic syndrome. And we try to give them this new education and we try to tell them, well, hang on a second, what you've been doing isn't working for you. They may not actually believe what we say but then mm. taking a blood sugar monitor and testing their blood sugars, we might give them a target to aim for and they're seeing that every time they eat a meal, they're constantly out of target. And then they're coming back for their second session and now they're engaged and now yeah. they're really keen to learn because, yeah, seeing it firsthand in your own body is, is amazing. I mean, it's the best mm. way to learn. And totally. it's the best way to troubleshoot for yourself. Like oftentimes you you don't need to give patients all the information, just give them a glucose monitor <laughs> and oftentimes <laughs> right. they can figure it out for themselves. 
Yeah. I mean, it's potentially game-changing, I think, this kind of personalised, insight-based data. I mean, the internet, as we know, last, you know, 15 years has just flooded us with knowledge and the knowledge isn't enough to get us kind of motivated in many ways. I mean, obviously for some, sure it is, you know, but for other people it's like I just need to know what's right for me. And I think the CGM, you know, monitoring is actually like, okay, well, let's show you what's right for you. Let's see it. Let's witness it. Let's look at your choices and let's see whether we can kind of ascertain how you're actually doing and how you want to do in the future. So I just think from a behaviour change perspective, you know, those daily insights, you know, 15 minutes or five minutes, whatever the increments are, is just such a powerful way for people to actually investigate their own choices um, and and do what they need to kind of do. Jessica, thank you so much for being with us today to discuss this new technology and particularly how it can be utilised in clinic. I just love, you know, that that in-depth understanding of the highs and lows. It's like being on a seesaw of glucose, (laughs) food choices, (laughs) exercise as well. And, you know, metabolic health optimisation is probably one of the most critical aspects of world health today, you know, and the work that you're doing in your PhD is so vital to understand you know, metabolic dysfunction and, and what we actually need to do as clinicians to to change this very, very scary trajectory of human health. So I'm mm, excited exactly. to watch this space with you. Yeah, thank you for having me. No, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. And maybe next time we can talk about glucose data for people with type 2 diabetes and with type 1 diabetes, because that's, you know, that's a whole other conversation yeah. to have. That's still very, very important. Yeah, let's do that. That's a date. We'll pop it in the diary. (laughs) Let's block it in. (laughs) Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts, and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse, and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you never miss an FX Medicine episode by subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram.